Hello listeners, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, I would strongly recommend listening to it, as this is part two of our story, and it may be hard to follow if you haven't listened to part one. Thanks! and welcome to the Timeless Science Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Bella Anima. Last episode, you heard a sordid tale of conspiracy and deceit. Jack, a washed-up private investigator, was roped back into service and shipped off to Pluto. His job? To help debunk a scandalous claim of alien contact on the wealthy planet. But after having a strange dinner with one of the well-to-do families, he was drugged by his fellow investigators. He was awoken by a lone investigator who was covered in blood. And now, for the conclusion of our story. Stay tuned. New Light. Written by D.A. Augustine. Narrated by Nick Denton. Part 2. March 10th, 2124. Barton Family Estate. Pluto. Jack shakes his head, still feeling groggy from the knockout drug that was put in his drink. He can hear the detective rambling on, but it is discombobulated. Foggy. Jack and Telly still a little out of it, but he has snapped back when the manic detective grabs him by his shirt collar. We have to leave now, he says frantically. Jack pushes the man off and asks, Why? What happened? The detective, clearly shaken, places both of his hands on his head and starts to pace. But I'm not sure. We were carrying out our main objective and... I, I can't be talking about this. Jack takes a deep breath and rubs his eyes. Well, that blood obviously isn't yours, Jack says before continuing. I'm sure telling me what kind of stuff you guys were sent to do will be the last of your worries when we get back. The detective just shakes his head. Jack grows impatient. Listen, if we're going to make it out of here, I need to know what's going on. The detective finally relents. My partner and I aren't detectives. We're council intelligence. Jack scoffs at this revelation, as he's always dumbfounded by how the UNC will break its own laws without hesitation when it suits their own agenda. He would find it more humorous if his life was not endangered. Go on, Jack says. The man continues. Council Intelligence's foothold on Pluto has always been shaky at best. We would grab a houseworker or bot mechanic when they were on their home rotation and turn them into informants. Problem was, we couldn't contact them while they were on Pluto, and when they came back on home rotation, they were different acting like they didn't remember agreeing to be a confidential informant in the first place, almost like they'd been uh, brainwashed. We had been shut out for years, so when we heard a whistleblower was communicating with the Justice Ministry, we had to step in. So where does 3D-printed assault rifles come into all this? Jack interjects. Our orders were to find a way into the planetary network and bug it. Since we know these people cannot be turned or coerced, we were given orders to neutralize any witness or hostile. The detective, 
held up a black, flat disc-shaped device. He tossed it to Jack before resuming. We find a way in through an unsecured cam dish outside the compound. Now, all their communications can be intercepted through that device. His voice began to break. But it was on our way back that we ran into... something. That... that... Suddenly, there was a loud banging on the door. The door was being hit so hard that the small furniture that was barricading it began to crack and break. The detective started to scream hysterically. No! They're back! No! No! The crazed detective opened fire at the door. Jack could see he'd gone mad. Jack knew that there were sitting ducks in that room. It would be a slaughterhouse if he didn't find a way out and quick. He started to look around at his surroundings. Noticing no windows, he began to panic until he saw a small vent right below the ceiling on the opposite side of the room. He called out to the detective, but to no avail. The detective was too far gone, so Jack went ahead and jumped on a small end table that he used to propel himself up to the vent. He pulled with all his might, and the vent opened. Before crawling through, Jack looked back and saw the detective changing clips. With the breaking gunfire, the pounding on the door started back up. Jack sighed and crawled through the vent. He got about ten feet before reaching a place where he could stand up. Directly above him was another vent that he started to forcibly push open. This is when he heard the detective scream out in pain before falling silent. The hair on the back of Jack's neck stood up as fear started to permeate his entire body. He used the fear to access a level of strength he did not even know he had to push the heavy vent open. The vent led to the building's roof. He only had a few moments to collect himself before he had movement in the vents. Jack was not about to sit around and wait for whatever killed the detective to find him. I have to jump he thought to himself. He walked to the edge and judged it to be about three stories up. Okay, don't overthink this, he says to himself. After taking a few steps back, he runs and jumps off the roof, landing on his feet before tumbling into a somersault. It's snowing heavily. Jack can barely see two feet in front of him. Knowing it would not be long before his would-be attackers followed him outside. He hid behind a large power box connected to the building he had just escaped. Soon after, the doors to the building flew open with about half a dozen men pouring out of it. Jack peeked his head out to get a better look at the assailants. Several things caught Jack's eye upon the closer inspection. The men were very well dressed and groomed, giving Jack the idea they were wealthy and maybe owners of the other Pluto estates. The men also wore the amulet like the Bartons had worn at dinner the night before. But instead of glowing green, the men's amulets glowed blood red. But the most ominous feature the men displayed were their eyes. Completely black. Jack, once again, was overcome with fear. Jack's attention was abruptly taken from the men as a six-wheeled white vehicle pulled around and parked in front of the building. The door opened, and Argus jumped out of the vehicle, flanked on each side by heavily armoured security bots. He began barking orders at the men. Load the bodies in the back and hurry up. We don't have all night. It has to look like an accident. One of the men spoke up. One of them is still missing, high priest. August was visibly upset by the man's words and let out an unbridled tirade at the man. You idiots! Our master will not be pleased. Find him! We need all three bodies! The men spread out, each going in a different direction. 
Argus hopped back into the vehicle, and it sped away immediately after. Jack poked his head out once more. He saw a man heading right toward him. Jack quickly ducked his head back behind the power box, hoping the man had not noticed him. He heard the patter of the man's footsteps growing closer. This is it, he thought to himself. But alas, the man walked past the power box. Jack was safe for the moment. Jack glanced around the corner again, seeing the man had left. He felt comfortable to come out of hiding. Jack cautiously approached the front of the building, sensing there was no one inside. He slowly re-entered the structure through the front door. He walked through the foyer and continued down the hall before reaching the building's kitchen. Jack frantically searches the drawers until he finds a steak knife. He takes the knife and leaves the kitchen. He walks back down the hallway and into the men's restroom. Once inside the restroom, Jack holds up in an empty stall, where he takes out the object that the detective had given him. The device bings as it turns on. It projects a 3D holographic screen a few inches above its surface. Jack taps on its menu option, after which he was given several prompts, comms, security protocols, and data. Jack taps the data option, and after, taps the camera feed sub-option. The device gives Jack access to hundreds of security cameras. He scrolls until he lands on the Barton spaceport option, which he quickly opens. Jack is filled with a sense of dread, as the footage shows the ship he had arrived on had been blown to pieces. Shit, Jack mutters to himself as he watches the bits of the ship burn. For a few moments he sits in silence, and then, an idea pops in his head. He gets back on the device and goes back to the main menu. This time, he taps the comms option and begins sifting through the messages going through the network. He notices something odd. Most communication is going to one recipient, continually referred to as Master. Jack monitors the network for a few more minutes before attempting to use the device to send a message back to Bill at Counter HQ. After this, he goes back to the device's main menu. He taps on the security protocols option. But before he can get far, the men return to the building. Down the hall! Jack hears one of the men shout. Jack figures they probably saw him on one of the security cameras. Jack opens the back of the toilet he'd been sitting on and stuffs the device into it. Hope it's waterproof, he chuckles to himself. Suddenly, Jack hears one of the men enter the restroom. Jack stands on top of the toilet base as not to reveal his location to the man. The man goes down the line of stools, kicking the doors in. Jack waits patiently for the man to reach his stall, which he finally does. The man kicks the door open and is met with a punch to the face from Jack. Jack jumps down and the man tries to return a punch, but it misses badly. Jack uses the knife to pin the man's hand to the stall door. After Jack lands two punches to the man's face knocking him out, the man slumps over his arm, still hanging with his hand still pinned to the stall door. Jack hears several more men running down the hall. He is not confident in fighting several men in such close quarters, so Jack jumps out of the restroom window back outside. There, Jack realised he had gone from the frying pan to the fire as he is surrounded by security bots with their machine guns drawn. The rest of the men also came out and surrounded him. Argus made his way to the front of the bots. Any last words? Argus asks. Jack smiles. Yeah, who's the master you all keep referring to? Argus raises his hand, signalling for the robots to hold their fire. Your network is bugged with an untraceable program, and if you kill me, 
You'll never find the source, Jack says triumphantly. No, we will find it eventually, Argus states, before signalling for the robots to attack. But before they can shoot, one of the men yells, Wait, in a deep guttural voice. The machines freeze. The man walks awkwardly towards Jack, obviously possessed by some outside entity. Bring him to me, the man says. Yes, master, Argus agrees. The possession seems to end, and the man falls, unconscious. Argus twirls his finger in the air. Shortly after, the six-wheeled vehicle pulls back around. The remaining four men grab Jack and throw him in the vehicle before hopping in themselves, along with Argus. A few moments into the ride, Jack's mood in the vehicle was foreboding. He was not optimistic about the outcome of this meeting with this so-called master. It also did not help that it was completely silent inside the vehicle's cabin. Argus finally broke the silence. You'd be better off if we killed you back there. Jack nods his head sardonically. The rest of the trip is filled with silence. After about 30 minutes of travel, the SUV arrived at its destination. The massive, monolithic pyramid structure Jack had seen earlier. It had a metallic look to it, almost like stainless steel. It was still radiating the teal green mist he had seen previously. The vehicle stops in front of a large set of stairs leading up to an enormous pair of doors. Jack is taken from the vehicle, up the steps, and into the structure. Inside the pyramid, it's a completely open space with a giant spire in the middle that goes all the way to the top. There are dozens of people in black robes spread out around the spire. They have their arms outstretched and seem to be performing some sort of silent worship. Jack is led to the bottom of the spire, where there is an elevator door. It is guarded by two men in golden robes with long spears. Only Jack and Argus are permitted to pass through. After entering the elevator, Argus presses a button and the box begins to ascend. Nervous to see your boss, Jack asks. Silence, Argus rebukes. The elevator dings and its doors open, revealing a lavish suite. The room had an exotic stone floor with a pool on the room's far side, filled with beautiful women. Gorgeous paintings hung on the wall accompanied by several sculptures and statues spread throughout the space. Jack also noticed a golden door on the opposite side of the room. We wait here, August whispered. Finally, the golden door swooshes open and a heavy-set bold man walks into the room. He's wearing an extravagant gold robe and has a large amulet, as well as the two white devices that are protruding from his temples. Argus bows to the man. I've done what you asked, master, he says. You've done well. You are a good servant, the master says. Now go. But master, he's dangerous, exclaims Argus. The man reaches into his robe's pocket and pulls out a small golden pistol. He points it at Jack. Jack raises his hands in submission. Go, the master again says to Argus. Argus obeys and re-enters the elevator. Come, the master then demanded. Jack slowly followed the man through the doorway, which revealed another lavish room that had black transparent glass walls overlooking the inner pyramid. When Jack first sets foot in the room, he is grabbed from behind by two bots that hold him still. What is this? Jack yells. The master opens a drawer in the desk on the far side of the room and pulls out an amulet 
like the others had worn. Don't worry, old boy. It'll make sense soon. The old man goes to put the amulet around Jack's neck. Jack squirms, trying his hardest to avoid wearing it, but fails as the man finally gets it wrapped around him. All of Jack's muscles seize up, and he is overcome with excruciating head pain. The bots let go of him, and he falls to his knees, clutching his head with both hands. The man closes his eyes for a few seconds, before reopening them. He taps on the device protruding from his right temple and says, It's in one of the toilet tanks at the Barton guest house. Goodbye, old chap, the man says as he grabs the pistol and points it back at Jack. Hold on a sec, Jack pleads. I've never not solved the case. So before you kill me, could you tell me what's really going on here? The man chuckles. I suppose it would be the proper way to put an old detective to rest. Close your eyes, the man says. Jack reluctantly complies. Well, this story started a while back. As the man begins to speak, Jack starts to see images like he was watching the man's past in a dream state. I started working for Lemnitzer Corp right out of college. I worked hard, long hours, seven days a week. I did every thankless job, put the company above myself for ten years, and what was my reward? A supervisor role on a desolate research station on Sharon. They were sending probes into the Cooper belts. The company wanted to find more places to mine there. It was the worst time of my life. Nothing really happened. I was one of the only non-scientists there, and worst of all was the lack of sunlight. I couldn't quit. I dedicated my entire life to the company. I was stuck. That's when everything changed. The research team's work came to an abrupt halt one day, due to interference with their probes. That's when the mysterious green mist appeared on our long-range scanners, about where the probes had gone offline. The radar showed it headed straight towards us. It finally got close enough for us to get a visual view of it out of the lab windows. It was beautiful. It was a green, electrified mist about the same size of a small cloud. The scientists started going crazy. They told me it was sending out radio frequencies, convincing them it was intelligent. Naturally, I contacted my bosses at Lemnitzer HQ in New York. They told me to try to capture it, saying it was now Lemnitzer property. So, I tried to make radio contact with it, and... Nothing happened. The scientists told me they were wrong, and it was an odd space anomaly we'd just discovered. A space storm, they called it. I had just told my bosses we made alien contact, and once I told them it was a misunderstanding, my career would be irrevocably damaged. So, I lied, and said I made contact and that the aliens had made me their representative. Once I sent my bosses the footage of the storm, they bought my story, hook, line, and sinker. Jack speaks up. What about the scientists? They knew you were lying. That was easy. I organized a staff meeting, got every employee together, and blew them out of the airlock. My bosses came to Sharon, and I told them that aliens wanted us to build a structure for them, to meet us at. They wanted it on Pluto. I couldn't believe that they were actually listening to me. I asked for more and more, to which they granted my every request. But I knew they would eventually grow weary of me when the aliens never showed up. So, I told them the aliens wanted us to buy a company that had been developing a mind-control harness. I said it was so they could communicate with people who wore them. 
If the poor bastards could have seen past their greed for a moment, they'd have seen the trap they were walking into. But they did not. I muddied the water to make it appear deep, and here we are. What about the children? The missing people? asks Jack. The man smiles before responding. All gods demand sacrifice. Now you know. The man takes the gun out and places the barrel on Jack's forehead. Jack tries to fight, but the amulet will not let him move. Jack closes his eyes, trying to accept his fate. Suddenly, Jack hears a huge explosion and feels an earthquake-like rumble. Jack and the man look out of the glass walls, witnessing dozens of council marines pouring into the structure through holes they had blown in the wall. Jack uses all his power to punch the man, knocking him over. That is all the movement Jack can muster. He prepares for a retaliation shot from the man, but the man looks distraught, like he knows it's all over. He puts the gun in his mouth and pulls the trigger. Instantaneously, the amulet powers down and Jack can move freely again. The elevator doors open. Bill, along with several marines, walk out of it. Oh, thank God, Bill says. I hope they get there in time. You got here quick, Jack replies. I had a bad feeling about the mission, so I got a tactical team ready and waited on Neptune. Jack looks down at the structure's ground floor, watching the marines arresting the cultist. He notices a feeling he had not felt in a long time. Joy. The joy of solving a case. The joy that had got him hooked to be a PI in the first place. Eight months later, November 17th, 2124, New York City, Earth. Council Ministry of Investigation Headquarters. Bill sits in his office. He's finishing up a phone interview with a media outlet. So, I understand you plan on writing a book about your takedown of the Pluto cult? The interviewer asks. I can neither confirm nor deny, Bill says before answering a few more questions. The interviewer ends the call with a, thank you for your time. Bill sits at his desk in silence for a few moments. He wonders about Jack, whom he has not heard from since the trials of the cult members. He picks the phone up and makes another call. JR Investigations, Marcy speaking. Bill hears a female voice say. Is Jack available? asks Bill. No. He's off ward on business for a few weeks, the woman says. Would you like to leave a message? No, it's okay, Bill says, before hanging up. Bill smiles. Good for him. Thanks for listening. I liked the happy ending for Jack. It seemed fitting. But what do you think? Let us know with an email at timelessciencefiction at gmail.com. And if you can, please feel free to give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Thank you, and stay timeless.